you have your Bibles, meet me in the letter of Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, when you get there, say amen. It is good to be in the presence of the Lord with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I want to preach on the topic, every believer's total victory in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and we thank you for your people. Now, God, I have prepared, but I need your Holy Spirit to anoint me. I need you, God, to speak through me in such a way that your people will hear your words and not mine. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts truly be acceptable in your sight. Our Lord, our strength, and our Redeemer, and all the people of God, say amen. Okay, I have a trivia question for you. What do all of these movies have in common? The Avengers, Age of Ultron, Batman, Dark Knight Rises, Peter Pan, and Star Wars 3. Anyone has the answer to that question? What do all of these movies have in common? Just go ahead and yell it out. Sequels, okay, all right, that's, that's true, but I, what I'm thinking about is that all of these movies have in common is that the good guys win in the end. The Avengers, Age of Ultron, Avengers uh, defeat Ultron. The good guys win. Batman, Dark Knight Rises, Batman defeats Bane and saves Gotham. And Peter Pan, Peter defeats Hook. Good guys win. Star Wars 3, Luke Skywalker defeats the Empire. Good guys win. But not only do we want a win, right? We want a crushing victory over the bad guys, a resounding victory, an overwhelming success. In a moment, the apostle Paul shows us how believers are totally victorious in Christ. That through what appeared to be the greatest defeat of all time, when the onlookers were looking, they thought it was a great defeat. When Jesus was dying on the cross, happens to be the greatest crushing victory of all times. And this is not a movie. We don't walk around defeated or under the influence of false teaching. But we walk in the resurrected Christ deeply and grounded and rooted in our faith. You see, each week we have been wrestling with one verse after another, listening to the Apostle Paul admonish and encourage these believers in Colossae, battling with heresy and self-made religion. Last Sunday, 
Pastor Tim preached on what happened to you when you got saved. From verses 9 through 12, we were cut off from Christ. We were buried in Christ, but we were vicariously raised with Christ. Certainly the Apostle Paul wants his readers to be swept away by the sheer magnitude of Jesus. To Savior his infinite supremacy and beauty and glory and brilliance and power so that they are not held captive by empty philosophy. See, Paul is seeking to help these believers to identify the counterfeit by studying the real deal, the overwhelming, glorious comprehensiveness of Christ. You are complete in him. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. There is nothing outside of Christ that will satisfy you. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Every believer's total victory in Christ is anchored in the past, present, and future reality. In the past, you were totally dead in sin, but made alive together with Christ. Secondly, in your present, you are totally forgiven of your sin debt. Thirdly, in your present and future, you have total victory in Christ over darkness. Let me give you the first one. In your past, you were totally dead in sin, but made alive together with Christ. Verse 13a and b. And you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. The Apostle Paul reminds these believers of their past and present. You were dead is a description of the spiritual state of every human being who is apart from Christ. The deadness of your sinful nature, Paul says, renders you really completely incapacitated, unable to connect with God in any real sense of that word outside of Christ. So the divine manufacturer has every person outside of Christ on total recall. Outside of Christ, humanity cannot perceive the truth of divine revelation. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, that the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them to be foolishness and cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Something supernatural must happen in you, nothing short of a miracle from God to quicken what's dead in you. See, it's not that humans, it's not that humans, if humans want to submit to God, but they really can't. No, that's not, that's not it. Their will is corrupt so that they don't want to do what's right. Their mind is set on the flesh, which is hostile to God, for it cannot submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. Humans continue to resist what God wants them to do until God changes their will so that they want to submit to God. 
but I discovered that when a person needs nothing, he or she is dead. I am alive, therefore I get hungry and thirsty and I need rest. There's a parallel to this in the Christian life. If your spiritual life is alive, you will be challenged to grow and to fill a need to be fed. Chapter 2, verse 6, therefore, just as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. You see, a corpse doesn't need food and drink and clothing. Neither does a spiritually dead person know he or she needs to be nurtured. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. This is the cause of spiritual death or separation from God. But why such a, a drastic separation from God? What's the big deal about sin anyway? And I was doing my homework and I searched the original Greek word for trespass, the word paratuma. It means to, to make a false step, to purposely overstep a known boundary. It's very similar to harmartia, which means missing the mark of God's divine standard or commands. It expresses a conscious and deliberate sinning against God. As a teenager, I used to play with a dartboard uh, that my mother had purchased for us, me and my brothers, and we put it in the basement. And I remember as I was aiming at the dartboard, there were multiple times, countless times, where I missed the target. And in missing the target, I end up putting holes in the walls. I missed the mark. So not only did I miss the mark, but I end up creating offense because there are holes in the walls. That's what it's like. We not only miss God's holy standard of righteousness, but we also offend Him and His holiness, and we rightfully incur God's wrath. The uncircumcision of your flesh here represents one sinful nature which alienates them from God and locks them into active hostility toward God. You see, Romans chapter 6, verse 23 is, is still true. The wages of sin, when you calculate it, is still death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. R.C. Ryle hit it on the nose when he said that we're all born in sin. We naturally love to sin. We take to sin as soon as we can act and think just as a bird takes to flying and a fish takes to swimming. There never was a child who required schooling or education in order to learn deceitfulness, selfishness, anger, self-will, gluttony, pride, and foolishness. No. These things are not picked up from bad companions or gradually learned by a course of tedious instruction. No. They show up on their own. The seeds of sin are evidently the natural product of the human heart. This is the undeniable proof that we are corrupt in sin by our very nature and we are bent on self going in the wrong direction. For instance, let me help you out. Very early on, my daughter Hannah, God bless her heart, uh, when she was old enough to understand parental instruction, 
we, we would give her a command to pick up her toy or her sippy cup that she threw on the floor and the water went everywhere. We soon realized that this little one was committed to a standoff. It was her will versus daddy and mommy's will. So we waited patiently for her to respond to our commands more than a few times. However, I, would, I tried something different. I actually gave her the opposite directive. Don't pick up that toy and don't give it to daddy. And it was then that I saw the essence of the sin nature manifest itself. She then picked up the toy and handed it to me. I was like, wait a minute. I said, okay, let me try this again. And literally more than a few times we were telling her the opposite and she would do, she would actually do what we wanted her to do. We didn't have to teach her how to do the opposite of what we commanded. This little cutie came built with a defiance in her DNA called sin, and all of us have been born with it. Amen? Okay, you, you guys are saints. I was born with it. He says, and you, God, made alive together with him. What does it mean? That God made us alive. I thought you would never ask that question. The word made alive means to reanimate. That word essentially denotes that you have been restored to life or consciousness, revived spiritually. Contextually, Paul expressed that nothing short of the resurrection power of God can quicken us totally, those who are totally dead in sin. Verse 12, it says, and you you have been buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You see, by implication, you have been born again, Paul says. You have been, you have come to life. You have been raised from death to the newness of life, infused with invigorating spiritual life in your mortal bodies, seated with Christ in the heavenly places, in vital union with Jesus, reconciled to your Creator, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, no longer alienated but grafted into the universal body of Christ. This is what it means that God made us alive together with Him. Every believer's total victory in Christ is rooted in the fact that God made us alive together with him. Sam Storms highlight that lots of people make no, who make no Christian profession whatsoever, who even openly repudiate Jesus, appears to be very much alive. One has a vigorous body of an athlete, another a lively mind of a scholar, a third, a vivacious personality of a film star. And so are we saying that such people, if Christ has not saved them, are dead? He says, yes, indeed. We must and do say this very thing, for in the sphere which matters supremely, neither the body, nor the mind, nor the personality, but the soul, they have no life. And you can tell it, he says. They are blind to the glory of Jesus Christ, 
They are deaf to the Holy Spirit. They have no love for God, no sensitive awareness of his personal reality, no leaping of their spirit towards him in the cry, Abba, Father. No longing to be in fellowship with his people. They're unresponsive to him as a corpse is. So we do not hesitate to affirm that a life outside of Christ without God, however physically fit or mentally alert this person may be, is a living death. And that those who live it are dead even while they are living. This is why Jesus tells Nicodemus, I call him Nick at night, you must be born again. Nick was a very nice and religious man, but he was still lost and needed to be born again. Let me ask you a question. Have you been born again spiritually? Have you been forgiven of your sins? Do you have a love for God? Do you see and savor the glory of Jesus Christ, his son? Do you long to be in fellowship with God's people? Have you come to a place in your life that if you were to die today, that you know for certain you will spend eternity with your creator? If you don't know Christ as your savior, if you can't answer in the affirmative, and you sense a tugging on your heart to come to him, that, my friend, is the presence of the Holy Spirit nudging you. The scripture says, the day you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Repent and come to Christ. I know we heard this verse over and over and over again, but John 3, 16, what? God so loved the world that he, that whosoever shall not but have everlasting life. See, in your past, you were totally dead in sin, but made alive together with Christ. Secondly, in your present, you are totally forgiven by God of your sin debt. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I was really taken by the, the Greek word of this word forgiveness, charizomai. Because in that word is embedded the word charis is where we get the word grace. And what this word simply means is to graciously give someone something that they do not deserve. This is why embedded in the word forgive is the word what? Give. <laughs> John Piper said that forgiveness is not getting even. It is not, it is giving away the right to get even. This is what God does for us when we trust Christ. Everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins, the scripture says. C.S. Lewis made a profound comment in this regard. He says, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has something to forgive. And that changes the game, doesn't it? It takes on a whole new meaning when you have to forgive someone. 
I love what Tim Keller said. He said, the, the currency of forgiveness is not words. God didn't simply say, I forgive you. No. The currency of forgiveness for Jesus is the nails, blood, and suffering. To truly forgive is going to hurt. He goes on to say that God's grace and forgiveness, while free to the recipient, is always costly to the giver. From the earliest parts of the Bible, it was understood that God could not forgive without sacrifice. No one who is seriously wrong can just simply just forgive the perpetrator. There must be a sacrifice. It's going to hurt. Paul presents some striking and very powerful word pictures here that captures the heart of what Christ came to do when he died on that cross to forgive us. In the first word picture here, he says, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. The apostle says our guilt was like a record of debt and an IOU signed by our own hands, promising to obey God. The Jews had contracted to obey the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 27. The Gentiles or non-Jews had countersigned through their conscience and keeping the moral law as they understood it, Romans chapter 2. The burden of guilt was immense. And the more they and we sin, the more record that stood against us. It was a crushing debt that we could not pay. But here's the good news. Christ took the IOUs that was stacking up against us and nailed it to the cross. The crushing debt that stood against us with his legal demands, he nailed it to the cross. It stood against us, personified like a prosecuting attorney standing against us in a court of law. You see, all humanity had committed cosmic treason against God, and we were guilty, Paul says, and not keeping the IOU. But in Christ, your record was expunged. And if you try to search for an expunged record, guess what? You will not find it because it no longer exists. It was obliterated, completely Erase. Wow. God completely wiped out our record of sin debt. Yeah, that's praiseworthy. And if we believe in Christ, watch this, God no longer holds our sins against us. This is God's own promise to us in Scripture. Here it is. I, even I, am he who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. Isaiah 43. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Psalm 103. You see, the highest court in the universe has already ruled in our favor. The condemnation is, is gone for those who are in Christ Jesus, not because there isn't any, because, but because it already happened. 
Christ took the hit for our just condemnation that we deserve. And that was demanded by the law. But not only did Christ take the hit, but he, he allowed us to be clothed with his perfect righteousness while he assumed our filthiness. This he set aside actually is more loaded in the Greek. He did more than setting it aside. The scripture says he nailed it to the cross. And I want you to see something that might not be apparent from the text. Lest we get lost in the analogy of a document being nailed to the cross. Let's recall what actually was nailed to the cross. Parchment paper was not nailed to the cross. Christ Jesus was nailed to the cross. He was the one who absorbed our record of debt into himself. We're talking about Jesus, the God-man, very God of very God, the express image of the invisible God, head of the church, was nailed to the cross for us. Every believer's total victory in Christ is riding on the fact that we have been made alive in Christ by being totally forgiven of our sin debt. It was Christ who was nailed to the cross. I could not help but to notice that as we're sitting in this sanctuary, and I reflect on this when the, the moment we purchased this building, as we're sitting and standing here in this sanctuary, I noticed the intentional design of this sanctuary. Have you noticed that? It's actually intentionally designed in the shape of a cross. You have the tall beam this way, okay, that is, the, uh, that is the vertical piece, and then you have the horizontal this way. You see that? Perhaps the Presbyterians who originally built this edifice understood the sheer weightiness of that cross that Jesus died on to free us from sin and God's wrath. And that every Sunday we come here and every time we partake of communion, we, we worship being reminded of what Jesus Christ went through for us at Calvary on that cross. You see, the cross is God's comprehensive solution to our plight. The cross is God's way of destroying evil without destroying us. The cross is God keeping his word. The wages of sin is still death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thirdly, in your present and future, your total victory over darkness is already won in Christ. In your present and future, you have total victory over darkness through the cross of Christ. The scripture says in verse 15 that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What exactly is happening at the cross? Paul gives us additional word pictures here to, to really capture the unfolding war existing in the spiritual realm or the invisible realm during Christ's crucifixion. He disarmed the rulers and authorities by putting them in open shame, triumphing over them in him, in Christ. 
The image is that of a conquering Roman general parading in splendor through the city, dragging his prisoners in chains from a successful conquest. It was a public shame to the enemy of the overwhelming victory just won. You see, on a purely physical level, it, it appeared that Christ was totally defeated at Calvary. His mangled body hoisted between two thieves, sentenced to die as a criminal. Bystanders on the ground wagging their heads. He saved others. He couldn't save himself. The religious leaders thought that they finally got rid of him. Satan probably smiled and demons had leaped up and down thinking that they won a great victory. We got him. We got him. And then when they thought that it was all over in a sweeping turn of events, Christ overpowered the enemy through the cross and even his resurrection. Yes, that's praiseworthy. Amen. And when God made us alive together with Christ, he transported us from the tyranny of darkness, from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. That was what was happening at the cross at Calvary. This is the main reason Satan and the forces of evil have lost their grip on us. See, there is no power or authority, Paul tells us, outside of Christ's control. Because why? He, he created everything, including angels, which many of them became bad guys. In fact, I venture to say that nothing exists apart from Christ. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. You see, I believe in the presence of demonic forces. I really do. But I also believe that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Christ, we have the victory in him. You see, the invisible cosmic struggle that took place at the cross shows us that Satan's head was being crushed. Elsewhere in Scripture, the prince of the power of the age is cast out. John 12, thrown down to the earth, Revelations 12, and bound, Revelations 20. See, Paul cried out, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You see, every believer in Christ has total victory because we know how the story ends, don't we? Revelations chapter 20. Verse 2 and verse 10 tells us how the story ends. Satan and his legions will be bound and cast into the lake of fire. We have total victory in Christ. Hallelujah. Certainly the enemy loves to intimidate you with fear, intoxicate you with uncontrolled anger, incite the lust of your flesh until it consumes you, indulge your appetites, so discord among the brethren. Seek to devour those who are not sober-minded. Distract you from God's word. Hinder you from genuine prayer. Tip you with fantasies. Draw you away with trivial pursuits. Domesticate you as a believer. 
render you ineffective in gospel ministry, threaten to tear apart you and your family, influence your kids with godlessness, and destroy your marriage over pettiness. But I am convinced, along with the Apostle Paul, that we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loves us. I am jolted by the Apostle Paul's words in in Romans chapter 8, verse 38. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers nor things to come, nor present, nor height, nor debt, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, although Satan may throw dirt in our faces to accuse us, whatever charge he throws at you, it won't stick. For God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. No, God made a public spectacle of them. It means that he he exposed them to public disgrace. So you see, Christ had dealt a fatal blow to the enemy at the cross. He endured our wrath. It was Henderson who said that God's wrath was burning itself out in the heart of Jesus. And then he adds that hell came to Calvary that day and the Savior descended into it and bore our horrors in our stead. But what does this all mean to us practically? So what? What these verses entail is the believer's total victory in Christ. Victory over sin, victory over our condemnation, no longer condemned. Victory over worldliness in the flesh and the devil. Martin Luther, the man who had sparked the Protestant Reformation, experienced the reality of this truth in a dream when he was visited by Satan, who brought him a record of his own life, written with his own hands. The tempter said to him, is that true? Did you write that? Poor, terrified Luther had confessed it was all true. Scroll after scroll was unrolled, and the same confession was wrung from him again and again. And at length, the evil one prepared to take his departure, having brought him down to the lowest depths of abject misery. Suddenly, the reformer turned to the tempter and said, It is true, every word of it, but right across it all. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses from all sin. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 8 verse 1. Paul says whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts and knows everything. No one can bring any charge against God's elect. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If he did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You see, the tyranny of guilt that crushes us no longer has victory over us. No weapon formed against you will prosper, Isaiah 54. For the weapons of our warfare 
are not fleshy, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure. No flood will overwhelm you. When the enemy comes in like a flood, and he will come in like a flood at times, God will raise up a standard against him. Your spiritual levy will not be broken. No fear will overpower you. God is not giving you the spirit of fear, but a power of love and of a sound mind. No demon can possess you, for you have the spirit of Christ, the hope of glory inside you. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. Your eternal life in Christ is secure if indeed you are in Christ. John chapter 10. Christ said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. No matter how dark it gets, no matter how overwhelming your circumstances, you can be anchored on the rock of our salvation and he will hold you fast. He will hold you fast. It's quite interesting that the Apostle Paul warned these believers in Colossae not to be taken captive as spoil to empty philosophy. He now encourages them that Christ disarmed and overpowered those very ones that are seeking to lead them astray. Christ is more than enough. You are complete in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In essence, Paul is saying, why are you tripping? There is no one greater than Christ. You are sufficient in him. You see, the adversary might throw fiery darks of doubt and deception your way, but they won't penetrate your shield of faith. Satan may prowl around like a roaring lion, seeking someone whom he may devour, but be sober-minded. Now, I hear what you're saying. Does this mean that we can't be touched by the enemy? Does it mean that the enemy is just sitting on the sideline and no longer a threat to us as believers? No. We're not immune to him. James tells us to, to, to submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from us. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and wickedness in heavenly places. No. He is still active until the day of judgment and will wreak havoc in your life if you yield yourself to him. Although his days are numbered, he is still tempting, he is still deceiving, he is still distracting people's eyes away from Christ. And when you and I put on the full armor of God by faith, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, we're putting on God's strength spiritually. We're walking in our divine authority in Christ. For the cross of Jesus and his death and resurrection has guaranteed our victory. Our victory is in him. Oh, when I surveyed the dimensions of God's love for us, the height and the length and the, the width and the depth of his love for us in Christ, it staggers my imagination. To see the intensity and the beauty of love supremely displayed in Christ's death on that cross, it's overwhelming. In your past, you were totally dead in sin, but made alive together with Christ. In your present, you are totally forgiven of your sin debt in Christ. 
and your present and future, you have total victory over darkness. What, the, what does this mean for us in short? This means that we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loves us. We are in possession of an overwhelming, never-ending victory in Christ because of his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. So let me ask you a question. Where are you with him right now? Maybe you're watching online and you never surrender yourself to Christ. Maybe you've been walking around in total defeat. Today is a day of salvation if you hear his voice. Do not harden your heart. Father, we thank you, Lord, and we pray that you will gently, gently nudge the person who doesn't know you, Lord, that they will come to know you as Lord and Savior. Cause them to repent and be broken over their sins, to turn away from their wickedness, turn away from their rebellion, turn away from their self-made religion, and turn to Christ. And in turning to you through the power of your Holy Spirit and through the gift of faith, that you will save their souls and give them a total victory that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all the people of God say amen. 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 Let's stand to our feet. As we stand to our feet uh, to be dismissed. Now unto him who is able to keep us from stumbling, the one who is able to present us faultless before his presence with eternal joy. To the only wise God, our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forevermore, and all the people of God say amen. Go in peace and be blessed this week. Amen. Go in peace. Don't forget to greet somebody if you don't want to shake their hand.